And now, coming to you live from the Jerome Kern Memorial Music Stand, not far from the Richard Rogers Hibachi Grill, it's the Coot Street Podcast with Joe. Jo- jo- that, that, that'll do. <laughs> okay, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just go with that. We'll just go with it. It's fine. I'm really impressed. Everybody wants to know. I, 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 I made Jonathan mention Jerome Kern because my feeling, which is completely irrelevant to the topic of the podcast, is that Jerome Kern wrote the first modern popular song. Okay, that's right. Which enough. was called, they, 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 uh, and if I told them how beautiful you were, they wouldn't believe me. It was a World War One song, very modern, and I learned the song not during World War One, despite how old you may think I am, but I learned that song from a Richard Lester movie called Oh, What a Lovely War, yep. which actually starred John Lennon, which yes. has, a, yes, it was, John, no, it was John no, no, Lennon's first starring Lennon. role yeah. as a non-Beatle. Yeah, but wasn't um, Richard Lester the guy who did Hard Day's Night? Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew I'd heard of him. He, 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 he was the great 60s sort of uh, 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 working class comedy director. I think he may have done The Knack. He may have done uh, Taste of Honey. I'm not sure which ones. Probably didn't do A Taste of Honey. Um, but at any rate, he was, um, he'd, he'd done this sort of epic fantasy, fan, fantasia kind of version of World War One. Yeah. At the end of which, and you can still find this clip somewhere on YouTube, the end of it, uh, is the camera pulling back from um, the, um, the, the, the the crosses, the thousands of crosses in Normandy of uh, the British uh, and French soldiers who died in the war. Mm-hmm. And the soundtrack is Jerome Kern's song, They Wouldn't Believe Me, as it had been adapted, actually, in his historical fact, to, uh, to World War One uses, and if they told, if I told them how wonderful it was, they wouldn't believe me. And while you're watching all these thousands of graves receding into this just sort of mass of white, you're hearing this really bitterly ironic but beautiful song, mm-hmm. uh, which worked as well. And I'm thinking the Richard Lester movie must have been 1969 or 1970. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and it it struck me at the time as that's that's a gorgeous, really horribly ironic, sad song, the way it's being used here. Uh, subsequently, I went back and looked at the original recordings of it, which were like 1914 or something. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to the song, you'll have a hard time believing that it was written that long ago. It does not sound like a Victorian song. It sounds like a modern song that could have been written by Rodgers and Hammerstein, by Cole Porter, by any number of people. That's not modern guys. And then, of course, and then of course Jerome Kern went on to write the great musical Fantasia of um, Showboat, based on an Edmund Ferber novel. Okay, let's, let's, let's spend the entire podcast talking about ancient musicals. We need to get to this. <laughs> I don't know. As in so many things, Gary, I might have to defer to your expertise in these areas, because whilst I have some passing familiarity with cl- classic musicals of the 30s and 40s, I have to confess that that, that, that that knowledge is passing. I could probably pull something up on Wikipedia for a minute if I have to, to fake it, but I suspect that the listeners might have an idea. I'm sure we'll hear from people probably correcting misstatements I've already made, because I'm not sure that I know which movies Richard Lester directed, <laughs> but he was very funny. There is one thing I have to assure all listeners, though, this week. This is not a fill-in podcast. This is the actual podcast. We actually have, we have, uh, I, I, I have notes. This is a prepared podcast. I know, us. I know. This is shocking. This and I, I, the reason I have to say it is because one in three people seem to have stopped listening to us in between finding out that we had a, um, a, a backup podcast last week, even though it was an actual podcast. We, we lost one in three listeners, Gary. 
Well, no, no, two and three. Two and three. Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, one of the things, I was unfortunately uh, in the um, hotel in Seattle where the Locust Awards are held, and we should talk about the Locust Awards. We will. And it was one of those hotels which, well, as we all know now, claims to have Wi-Fi in the rooms. Well, I'm sure it does have Wi-Fi of a sort, Gary. Just not the kind you're going to carry a reliable signal uh, to record a podcast on. No, and we, and we, and we can argue if that's something we actually can expect them to provide to us, Gary. But they should. They should. We need it. Wi-Fi signals should be available in parking lots. <laughs> Wi-Fi signals should be available for people in fields of gold. They should be everywhere. Have you heard about first world problems, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, have you heard about? Oh, this is completely uh, off topic. Have you heard about Google Loons, the, the Google Loons project? No. Now I, I should I, I should I should clarify for you as I will very almost immediately that the Google Loons project has nothing to do with birds. The Google Loons project has to do with floating a network of balloons up in the stratosphere to bounce free Wi-Fi signals yes. around the world. Yes, so so people in remote desert areas of Somalia and Chicago can actually get Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and Chicago and possibly hotels. <laughs> Maybe they're going to float balloons over each hotel. That would be convenient. Well, when, well on, on those occasions when I uh, attend a convention which you are unable to attend because you live on Mars, <laughs> we we become completely dependent on yep. whatever accommodations the hotel provides, and we've had a disastrous. Uh, a couple of disastrous experiences with that where it just didn't work yep. um, or where it was inadequate. I would love to have been able to Shanghai some guests last weekend. I had a nice lunch with Kim Stanley Robinson. and um, Your name dropping, Gary. No one likes you now. Hmm? I said, your name dropping, Gary. No one likes you now. <laughs> I was having like okay, Robinson. Okay, I had a nice lunch with a guy who just written a book about cavemen. See, that doesn't sound so good. i got to tell you, I love Stan Robinson's books, but I'm cautious about Shaman. I have a copy, uh, thanks to NetGalley, but uh, I'm cautious about it. I have, I have a suggestion, which I don't know if Stan would approve this or not, because he actually was not writing the novel. This is a novel about um, – this takes place 32,000 years ago in France, essentially. Yeah. And, and there's no vaulting into the future. It's purely a, a Paleolithic novel. If you look at or watch, and it's available at least in the States on Netflix and various things, um, the Werner Herzog, Werner Herzog documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, yeah, um, which is about the exact caves in France that Stan's novel is about, mm -hmm. it will give you an enormous perspective on the novel. It's one of those odd things. I had happened to see the, the Herzog film before I read Stan's novel, which I believe is coming out in September. Um, and... It just seemed like a haunting, brilliantly realized answer to a question that Herzog asked. You're, you're going into the um, caves in uh, Chauvet in, yeah. in France. And deep inside these caves, there are these marvelous um, paintings of, 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 of bison and oryxes and, and, and various things. Um, a good, what, I'm, I'm going to say a good 10,000 years before the most famous yeah. cave paintings were found in Lascaux. So these are the oldest works of art found by humans, um, and they're stunning. And uh, the the, the uh, Herzog film at one point in it, uh, even though most of the science scientists he 
interviews are not very articulate. He himself says, what, how can we possibly understand the motives of the artists who created these things deep inside this cave, you know, using yeah. torchlight? And, and uh, Shaman answers that question. Uh, it was not written as an answer to the question because Stan told me he hadn't seen the Herzog movie until he was halfway through writing the book. But it's a perfect setup for that book. Okay. If you've ever wondered where cave paintings came from, uh, it's the it, and, and there's a whole subgenre of um, prehistoric fiction. There's a good study of prehistoric fiction. Oh, there are. Fiction. There's lots of them, yeah. It's been going on since the mid-19th century. So what's the Herzog I mean, movie again? Hmm? What's the Herzog movie again? It's called Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Okay. And it's... Interestingly enough, the cave, the, the cave and it was only discovered in, I'm going to say, the 70s or 80s, even, maybe the 90s. I don't know. Uh, it was sealed off as soon as the French archaeologists realized how valuable it was. So the Herzog movie represents the only motion pictures that will ever be made inside those caves. Wow. And Fantastic. It's, it's, it's spectacular. It's, it's, it's wonderful to watch. So I recommend that to everybody because... It, it, it raises another question, which is the sense of wonder. Do you get a sense of wonder in looking at those cave paintings, yep. which is exactly the sense of wonder that science fiction goes after? Where did these come from, and who made them? And we have no idea. Yeah. And nor will we ever. Nor will we ever. We have a few stone implements. We have a sense of what was going on at the time. What had happened, apparently, was that the, uh, the carbon dating uh, places the drawings and paintings about 32,000 years. Apparently, something like 10,000 years later, there was a major cave-in which sealed the cave, mm -hmm. sealed the caverns, and some French uh, explorers were simply looking for hidden caverns by, by measuring wind coming out of underground sources, and they found this pile of rocks, and there was some wind coming out of it, and so they started disassembling the pile of rocks, which at that point had been sealed for more than 20,000 years. Wow. So everything inside it was perfectly preserved. That's remarkable. It's, a, it's an astonishing film. and um, it, it, it raises a question for those of us in the science fiction field, which is a question that has been around, I guess, for decades, if not, if not more than a century, as to whether speculations about prehistoric creatures, not prehistoric humans, uh, are a subset of science fiction, or are they a subset of historical fiction, or what are they? I don't know. I mean, I know this is something which uh, Steve Baxter has wrestled with in his fiction, though he tends mm -hmm. to um, link it overtly with with some science fictional element uh, to, to to make it part part of the genre. I don't know. I, I don't have a strong feeling. It's hard for me to feel that some of the more popularist versions of these things have much to do with science fiction. And I guess I'm over obviously thinking about things like the Gene All books, the Clan of the Cave Bear things. Um, and it, it's... But, but I, I am taken by the argument that we're attracted to um, prehistoric fiction because it's the, the, the one time when there have been other intelligent humanoids on the planet kind of a thing that we coexisted with. And they were the yes. other and the alien, you know. And that, you know, the, uh, that is a intriguing thing. No, I don't, and there's an element of it that touches, does it sort of go to what we find interesting in, in science fiction. I think. Mhm. Mm I think that's it's like a it's like a, I don't know, an Ur version of uh, alien contact stories, and that, that, that's that that's true in in, in uh, Stan's novel Shaman as well. There there are characters called the old ones, uh, and uh, all a lot of the best 
prehistoric fiction novels. The term prehistoric fiction, or PF, was coined by Nicholas Rodick, who wrote a good study of these things called The Fire and the Stone. Um, they all tend to deal, or many of them tend to deal, with the fact that the Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons, or the earlier versions of, you know, genetically modern man, coexisted. Yeah. We know that they coexisted. Whether they interacted is speculative. Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing. But if they did, that would have been the first alien contact. Yes, yes, it that would have been. been the first, not the first alien contact, the only contact in any part of recorded or unrecorded history of two intelligent species confronting each other. Yes. And so it's the, the kind of speculation... So whether it would have been confrontation is interesting, because after all, they co-evolved, didn't they? Um, yes, and there have been there, there have been any number of stories uh, from, let me think, from Asimov's The Ugly Little Boy to Philip Jose Farmer's The Alley Man to a novel by Frank Robinson, whose title I'm blanking on at the moment, about Neanderthals surviving into the modern world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, and, and, and those are essentially alien contact stories. Yeah. However, we have segued far from our intended topic. So you went to, uh, read, uh, to uh, the Locust Awards weekend and had lunch with Stan Robinson. And I had lunch with Stan Robinson. I had lunch with a lot of other people. We had lunch. I, we, had, we had a nice dinner with... Uh, uh, with, with with Liza and uh, and Fran from Locus with Connie Willis, um, and uh, it was just generally an interesting weekend. I, I conducted a panel, a couple of panel discussions with Nancy Cress and uh, James S. A. Corey, or at least Daniel Abraham. Mm-hmm. And um, was Ty there? Greg, mm-hmm. Was Ty there? I was there? Ty was there as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, yep. uh, Greg Bear was there. Um, there were a lot of really good podcasts we could have had had. <laughs> we had hotel Wi-Fi. Ah, well. So we we don't need to tantalize our listeners with a podcast that didn't happen because we all know what What happens what with that? that? Let's not do that. Yes. Though I will just briefly cast back a quick retrospective thank you once again to Mike Harrison for coming on the podcast with what has become one of our most popular episodes ever, Gary. It should be. I, I actually... Almost never we listen to our podcasts, and I yeah. wanted to hear some of the stuff Mike was saying. Yeah, because you weren't there. And he, yep. He is really, really smart. He is, he is, I know. It's not intimidating at all. But actually, he was sweet. It was a lovely conversation. And if you haven't listened to it, go back and join one of the couple of thousand people who have. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where we go. Now, there were the rest of awards presented. I don't, do we want to go through the, re- the results, or should we just tell everybody? We should that- at least look at the results of the awards, because... Uh, one of the issues that come up, and it's come up in discussions also, is that the Locust Awards are, uh, and the current issue of Locust describes what happened in terms of the actual voting in the awards, in terms of the voting of everybody uh, compared to the voting of Locust subscribers. Yep. And there were some differences, and there always are. Yep. Um, so, so one of the issues that, that people have to keep in mind about the Locust Awards is that they are... Um, Partly determined by popular vote, they can be certainly completely determined by an overwhelming popular vote, mm-hmm. but subscribers who are a select subset of the popular vote can yes. in some cases make a difference. That's true. And that has. And by been. the way, speaking of Locus Awards, congratulations for the Edge of Infinity. Thank you very much. I was very, very pleased for, to, to uh, have had the book win, though it wasn't the result that I was most pleased about, I confess, but I was very pleased. 
And I look forward to uh, getting my plaque, which I think they'll be sending to me, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, the, re- the, the result you were most pleased about? I have to say I was most pleased with uh, Pat Cadigan uh, winning Best Novelette for the Girl Thing Who Went Out for Sushi, which came from Edge of Infinity, and which is a story yes. I really liked and I think helps uh, nudge Pat back to the center, to the center of the stage of the genre, where maybe she'd wandered from a little bit with other things happening. And Because you know, if you go back to sort of the mid-90s, after she'd been a cyberpunk and when Sinners came out, she was very much in the heart of the discussion of the field. Now you've got the story that's come out. It's just won the Locust Award. It's up for the Hugo Award, and I think it's got a very good chance of winning the Hugo Award. Um, and she's writing a novel based on it. And I think, yeah, I did, just for, for that reason, I'm delighted. And also, I mean, the, <clears throat> the books I do are more about the writers in them than they are about me, so I'm really happy. And everybody should read the girl who uh, the girl thing who went out for sushi. But I have a question about that uh, story, and we need to get Patagon on to talk about that. Yeah. Do you think that that story is part of a constellation of stories that are related to James Tiptree's The Women Men Don't See? Yes, I do. I do too. Okay, I'm, I'm convinced. I, I'm convinced, yes. yes. Okay, because it's a very interesting story. It's a story which really ought to be, uh, you know... Uh, actually, actually, I, maybe, actually I, I have to say, you could, do, you could probably do a fascinating anthology about the st- of those of those stories and 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 other other new ones you know i think, I think that's there interesting. Are, there there's some keystone stories and uh, and joanna russ has probably written as many keystone stories as anybody i can name offhand mm-hmm. uh that people write variations of the most very the most famous variation of the women men don't see is karen joy fowler's what i didn't see yeah um and and the question has come up in discussions about that story as to whether it yes. would be a science fiction story at all if you didn't know the allusion <laughs> to the James Tiptree story. Um, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Yeah. But anyway, we should look at the other yes. winners. Okay. The, uh, uh, best science fiction, oh, well, science fiction novel was awarded to John Scalzi's Red Shirts. Mm-hmm. And his what? wife showed up to give a very moving acceptance speech yep. written by John in which he had hoped that Ian Banks would win. Yes, yes, and and I have to say, over the probably over the preceding fortnight or so since uh, Ian had passed away, I think a number of people had hoped that might have happened, particularly since we're now faced with the strange case of this incredibly major science fiction writer who basically never won or, or was barely nominated for a major science fiction award in his career. Um, which is true, and it's very odd that that happened. Of course, the realities of the voting were such that. The voting was basically done by the time people had found out about his, his, well, his passing. Well, no, there was. Well, they weren't basically. I mean, there was finished in mid-April. The, the locust. Finished. So, so that that was very much a thing of the past. And in some ways, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really wish on him that he would win because he died, right? Uh, no. But I think it's an oddity that needs to be considered that he was barely nominated in his long and illustrious career. And you have people coming out saying how important he was, how important his books were, and naming book after book after book, but never nominated for the, for the, for the Nebula. Up once for the Hugo, uh, seven or eight years ago, and not since. Uh, and that's about it for major awards. <clears throat> I mean, he won well, the BSFA it, twice, um, but that's well, it. It's one of the things that underlines, I, th- I think, something we've been cautionary about before on the podcast, that awards are not a good way to provide a reading list for anyone. Uh, and not uh, only in science fiction. I mean, if you, if you, you do not want yeah. to study American literature of the 20th century by going through and reading no. all the Pulitzer Prize winners. No. 
But also, I mean, more importantly, I guess, they're not even necessarily a good snapshot or a reliable no. snapshot of the field. And certainly, Banks is a great case in point of a major writer who, who, who has contributed major work to the field, and no one would, would dispute that, I don't think, seriously, and over an extended period of time. I mean, lots and lots of books. And yet, well, and from another- the mid-1980s forward, nothing. Awards no, it's 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 rather astonishing when you think about the uh, the the, bo- the body of work as a whole. Mm. Um, and he never had a chance to become a grandmaster. Nope, and he certainly deserved uh, that that honor as well. You know, so. But, well, one of the things that happens, and I don't want to sound too elitist in saying this, a popular vote is always going to depend on the books that get read by the largest number of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm convinced that people who vote on popular awards, and this includes the Hugo's. Uh, consist of a large chunk of people who have read only the book they're voting for. Well, that may be true, but anyway. or maybe two or three books. But uh, I mean, the reason I mention that is that uh, and, and John Scalzi is a very good science fiction writer, and yep. Red Shirts is a lot of fun. It's an enjoyable book. Yep. Uh, it is a recognition of humor in science fiction, which is too seldom recognized by any of the awards processes. Uh, but he's also a very popular writer who's going to be read by more people than sure. most of the other nominees. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that when, when I look at something like a Miles Verkosigan book from Lois Bujold, uh, you know, I wonder. And I, you know, but nonetheless, um, congratulations to John. I mean, congratulations to John. The best fantasy novel. I must confess, this surprised me not because I didn't like the book, but because. Well, I, if you said to me what's a best fantasy novel, I don't think this would have come to mind. But uh, Charles Strauss's *The Apocalypse Codex*, the latest of his uh, laundry I've books, one. Not that either. Yeah. Now I've read it, and, and it's it's a fun book. I mean, and I'm I'm not shocked to see it win. Though personally, my love of the Drowning Girl remains deep and true, and I would have loved to have seen it win. But uh, congratulations to Charlie. Um, first novel went to Saladin Ahmed for *The Throne of the Crescent Moon*. I hadn't read all of the first novel nominees, but I did read Throne of the Crescent Moon, enjoyed it very much, and thought it was a, a worthy winner. Best young adult book went to China Mieville's Rail Sea. Now, this is one of those ones where, if, if dear listeners, you go and you read Locus, you'll see that awards change very, you know, over a period of time as people vote, and then there's the balance of different mm-hmm. of subscribers and non-subscribers. So... It was really neck and neck with, with between Railsea and Paolo Bacigalupi's The Drowned Cities. So, an interesting category. I have to say, I'm looking forward to Paolo's next book, Zombie Baseball yes. Beatdown, because how could you not look forward to a book called Zombie Baseball Beatdown? But, and I don't even know when China's next book is. I don't know if he's even writing one at the moment. Um, I think he's going quiet. I mean, that was the impression I got when I spoke to him here in Perth earlier in the year. He's got other things on. He's been writing. I'm not sure what he's been writing. Yeah. The, the, the commonality between these things, uh, and I think we could even add probably in Nancy Cress's uh, After the Fall, Before the Fall, During the Fall, uh, which is something, that, it's, it's a sort of the Nancy Cress, and I think I've said this before, Nancy Cress is the closest thing we have among current writers to a Robert Silverberg. Sure. Who knows how to write everything in science fiction. Yeah. But all of these major award winners have been fun. They've yeah. been enjoyable reads. They've been Uh, uh, engaging, uh, delightful in various ways, uh, and not, uh, even though the the Nancy Chris novella is essentially post-apocalyptic alien invasion thing, there's there's a kind of, 
there's a certain kind of science fiction feel-good sense, which is sure. not necessarily that everything's going to work out for the best, but there's a sense that things have been figured out and it's okay. Yes. Um, it comes across in all of the major winners. So I think that uh, the, the, the enjoyable books, I have nothing against enjoyable books. I'm not sure I would have, well, I would have, <laughs> I would have second-guessed some of the choices. Yeah, actually, I would have chosen, I would have chosen but uh, as much as... You would have second-guessed them, absolutely. We all do. That's what we do. Well, that's the whole point of having awards, is to second-guess them. Yes. <laughs> Unless you receive them, in which case it's hopefully to get a bit bought a free drink on the night that they're presented. Um, obviously, well, as you've now foreshadowed, Nancy Cress's After the Fall, Before the Fall, During the Fall won Best Novella. We've already talked about Pat Cadigan getting Best Novelette for the Girl Thing Who Went Out for Sushi, which I'm delighted about. I was... Completely unsurprised, but pleased that Aliette de Bodard won Best Short Story for Immersion. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have been, frankly, taken aback if anything else had happened. Obviously delighted that the, well, let, let, let's, call it, let's call it the anthology of the millennium, uh, Edge of Infinity, uh, picked up Best, Antholo- Best Anthology. That was pleasing. And was... Well, I should, say, I should say also that's a very well-timed anthology because... If we actually keep to our plan and, and get around to talking to um, to our listeners about the year so far, yeah, the Edge of Infinity seemed to be exactly correctly timed in the middle of the um, outer solar system uh, yeah. boom, which is going on in science fiction. Yeah, I think it came out pretty pretty well. I, I won't pretend to be having been that clever about it, and I am of course working on another one. But yeah, um, yes. Then best collection, and I confess I was surprised. I'm I'm pleased that Elizabeth yeah. Bear Shoggoths in Bloom picked up best collection at the Locust Awards in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Congratulations to Elizabeth. Um, it, on a very strong ballot, I have to say, a very strong short collection. Yeah, story collection that, was ballot. A, that was a good list. Um, also, William Gibson picked up uh, the Locust Award for the distrust that particular flavor. The, the annual Spectrum Award went to the, the latest uh, volume of Spectrum, because that seems to be how that plays. People who don't know the Spectrum anthology should look at them, because there is a sense in which... Um, I've not looked at the last one, actually. Yeah. But the Spectrum anthologies look at not only illustration art, book cover art, they look at advertising, they look at gallery mm-hmm. art, they look at a lot of different kinds of things. And the notion that, that science fiction slash fantasy is a genre within the contemporary art world is something that you can learn a lot about by looking at those anthologies. Yes. So that, that, yes, and I mean, I've been looking at them for, for years, so I confess I kind of stopped buying them. Uh, Michael Whalen won the uh, annual Boys Award, Best Artist, mm-hmm. uh, in amongst a, a bunch of other very ne- talented never a men. Surprise. Uh, Ellen Datlow, my, our good friend Ellen Datlow, uh, w- w- was a very worthy winner of the Best Editor Locus Award, I think, f- uh, and not for the first time. I think she's uh, been a recipient several times yes, over the last is. handful of years, and I'm sure she will be at the forefront uh, next year as well. I was, I remain surprised she didn't make it onto the Hugo ballot this year. Um, so, you know, the fact that she won the Locus Award is just, is a ne- nice counterbalance. I think it's her fifth or sixth or 58th um, Locus Award, something like that. She's got like a bunch of them. Not as many World Fantasy Awards, but you I mean, look, hey, you got to sort of struggle along. She has made uh, a name as an anthologist in the current generation. Oh, yeah. That's hard to compare with. I mean, when I was a kid, there were... Anthologists are something you don't grow up knowing about. 
And the fact that general readers know Ellen's name or your name or Gardner's name or Rich Horton's name uh, or Steve Jones's name yep. uh, is, is, is a testament to the visibility yep. that you have as a brand. Yes. Because when, yeah. when I was a kid, I knew Groff Conklin. I, yeah. I liked August Durleth anthologies. Yeah. I liked Judith Merrill anthologies. Yeah. Um, but it takes a certain consistency over a certain period of time to become a recognizable name among general readers yeah as you have and as ellen has well i mean but she's got five hugos nine world fantasy awards three bram stoker awards she's got a british fantasy award she's got a couple of shirley jackson awards and a passel what two three four five six seven eight nine nine or ten locus awards which is and i have to say frankly without looking at them in detail all very well deserved um, unsurprisingly, as happens from time to time, Asimov's has won Best Magazine at the Locus Awards. Mm-hmm. This does happen more than often, more often than not. And Tor took home the Publisher Award, uh, just beating out Subterranean. So, yeah, all in all, a very healthy batch of awards for, for what I hope was a good weekend. Uh, it was it was a delightful weekend. I'm glad, as, speaking of the last category, I'm glad that Subterranean showed as strongly as it did, as being a small press. Uh, you know, basically coming up against uh, mainstream presses. Yep. But it's, it's always a delightful weekend. Uh, it, it's the, the, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which I gather took place the day I left, is now uh, essentially reduced to something as an adjunct to the Locus Awards. Initially, yeah. it was the around, yeah. Well, the, yeah, the Locus went to Seattle because the uh, Science Fiction Museum had money, mm-hmm. which subsequently disappeared, and the museum itself has... Not quite disappeared, but it's certainly been demoted to an exhibit within the larger EMP Music Project Museum, mm-hmm. which is which is rather sad. But there's still Norwescon, there's still the Clarion West people, uh, the students uh, at Clarion West, one of whom was Lily Yu this year. Yep, uh, are just brilliant. From what I I heard from uh, from Liz Hand and and, and from John Clute and uh, from Connie and uh, Nancy, that these were some of the best students they've they've had. So fantastic. The the good news, I guess, that comes out of the Clarion West, at least, is that there are a lot. I mean, some of the students, these people are students in Clarion West. Some of the students had novel contracts. One of yeah. the students had had won multiple awards already. So we're we're developing whatever people tell you about the state of the market, or the state of science fiction, or the death of science fiction, or the uh, tendency of science fiction to simply uh, wither away. The what I heard and what I saw, meeting a few of the younger students, is that there's a really smart generation of creative writers coming up, and of course, not all the ones that are coming up are, are necessarily showing up at Clarion workshops. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, this might be a, a moment to segue onto the, what was to be the second topic of our of the podcast this week. Gary, which is the sad news of the death of World Fantasy Award uh, Guest of Honor Richard Matheson. I was heartbroken for a number of reasons. Is somebody for two reasons? One, he's one of the first people I ever read as a kid. Yep. And secondly, I thought at Brighton, I'm finally going to get a chance to meet him. Yep. I've never met. I've. I, I don't know that I've met anybody who's met him. I think Charles, even Charles, said he'd met him once or twice in passing, but. Uh, it, it seemed that fairly early on in his career, Richard Matheson moved into the world of media and and, and, and movies and bestsellerdom and that sort of thing and didn't have a lot of connection with the science fiction world. 
Which is reasonable, and one of the reasons I want to talk about him is because I think that in terms of science fiction, yeah. he's, his influence may be underestimated, because I think his influence was a cultural influence more than a literary influence. Um, yeah. He, I, as, as you are well aware, I included his novel, The Shrinking Man, in this yes. Library of America collection from the 50s, which a number of people noted as being anomalous. But I, uh, and I think it might be from a modern perspective in the sense that by the end of the 1950s, Matheson had essentially moved out of science fiction. Yeah. Uh, his first couple of collections uh, that appeared in mass market paperback, um, The Third from the Sun and The Shores of Space, I remember, I can visualize the covers now. They were enormously uh, impressive to me. He was one of a couple of writers that I saw as the Bradbury tradition. The other yeah. one was Charles Beaumont, really. Yeah. Um, and you, if you look at his story collections, uh, by the 1960s, he had a series of story collections under the title Shock. Yes. Which were clearly moving in the direction of horror or sort of general purpose Fantasy, but but the first two collections were full of science fiction stories. His first major story was Born of Man and Woman. Yeah, and then other stories, which became things like Ship Shape Home or things like Third from the Sun. Many of them became Twilight Zone episodes or Amazing Stories episodes or whatever. Um, and his first novel, yeah. uh, I Am Legend, was a science fiction reconceiving of the vampire. Yeah, which is which is being done all over again. It's been made into a movie three times. Yeah. Um, the second one was The Shrinking Man, which was, um, even though he himself admitted the science fiction elements was completely hand-waving, we know that he consulted neurologists and biologists to figure out how could this might work. Yeah. So, but what he did, I think, really, really well as a short story writer and increasingly less as a novelist, was to take a, a single idea and just follow it through like a laser to its, to its consequences. You know, the I Am Legend is, it, 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 it's a great pitch. He wrote great pitches. Um, last man on earth, everybody else is a vampire. Go with that. And he went with it. Yeah. Uh, a guy starts shrinking, go with that. And he just went with it. He didn't, he didn't rationalize anything. He didn't, uh, but his narratives were just really, really compellingly straightforward and disarmingly simple. Um, and I have, I'm, I'm old enough to remember being a little bit disappointed when things like A Stir of Echoes came out and he started getting into sort of supernatural spiritualism kinds of things. Um, Hell House, for example. Yeah. Well, it's a good horror story, but, but, but like I say, by, basically by the end of the 60s, by the end of the 50s, he'd moved out of science fiction more or less for good. Yeah. By the end of the 60s, he'd more or less moved out of horror fiction for good. And in the 70s and 80s, he was beginning to do what dreams may come and sure, things sure, like that. Sure, sure. Frankly, I found less interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, his career in some ways was not that dissimilar to Bradbury's, was it? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in except the he had a lot. He had a lot more success in Hollywood than Bradbury he did. ever did. He did. I mean, uh, there's a small handful of ma- of films that uh, Bradbury was involved with, whereas there are a couple of dozen uh, major films that. Um, that, that Matheson was involved with from the ones of his own books like The Incredible Shrinking Man, but but it you know to, to the um, the adaptations like House of the House of Usher and Pit and the Pendulum, uh, all the 
Roman films, yeah. All, all those sort, all those sorts of things, through to you know later films like you know Somewhere in Time or whatever, uh, all of which were major successes. Oddities like having worked with Charles Beaumont on adapting uh, Conjure Wife into Burn Witch Burn, yeah, you know, and then all of the stuff he did for TV. I mean, he, did, he wrote a lot for television. Well, um, Duel, which was actually a, a classic, Spielberg's first first yeah. or second film. Um, but yeah, uh, and, and they also, when he uh, sold the rights to The Shrinking Man, which became the film The Incredible Shrinking Man, part of the contract was that he got to write the screenplay. Yeah. And as far as I know, at that point, no science fiction writer, this is 1954 or 55, no science fiction writer had ever had the temerity to ask that being written into the movie rights contract. He did, he did write the movie, and the movie made some interesting and uh, substantial yeah. and probably, to some extent, improvements on the novel toward the yeah. end. Uh, now, I think what he really wanted to do was to set up a kind of pioneering spirit that writers of genre fiction have have control over the work in movies. Yeah. It didn't. It's a, it turned out it didn't play out that way. Not very many people followed in his footsteps or were yeah. able to follow in his footsteps. But nevertheless, that's why I say he had a cultural influence. Several people said in the obituaries or in the memoirs or in the tributes that came out after he died that, um, well, you know, all the Twilight Zone episodes you remember are based on his stories or, or screenplays yeah. by him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's some truth to that. Um, but this, uh, the other side of that was that as he moved more and more into Hollywood, his, his fiction became less and less interesting as fiction. To my mind. Yeah, yeah. And and he remained vibrant and creative right into, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the last sort of 10 or 20 years he's had interesting novels. I mean, not, not your favorite, interesting novels come out. He was still active in Hollywood working at, uh, working on film uh, right up until the end. I think he was working with um, Steven Spielberg on a, on a film called Real Steel. So, you know, a, a, a very vibrant creative force. And Steel was one of his short stories, which had then subsequently become a Twilight Zone episode, which became the movie Real Steel. And I'm feeling really embarrassed now because his last novel, which was a novel about a World War One veteran, it takes place in rural England. Yeah. Oh, and I reviewed it for Locus. I'm gonna. People will will certainly log onto the website and tell us what it was. Was it Generations it was or Other Kingdoms? Other Kingdoms. There was one after that. A book called Generations came out last oh, year. Generations, yeah. I don't know. Other Kingdoms was a solid fantasy novel. It was a solid yeah. fantasy novel that seemed to have picked up some of the sensibilities of what I consider to be contemporary English fantasy, even though there was nothing English about Madison. Yep. Uh, there, 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 was a, there, there were touches of the sorts of things that Robert Holstock or Graham Joyce would do in that novel, and it picked it up with a voice that uh, kind of a dual voice of an old, aging memoir writer yeah. looking back on something he remembered from the 1920s. And I, mm -hmm. thought it was, I thought it was a quite moving novel. Yeah. I have no idea, because I don't know much about Matheson's recent career, I have no idea where it came from, but I thought it worked. Yeah. And for, from what I understand, to sort of to dovetail back to where we came from, uh, a significant portion of the programming at uh, the World Fantasy Convention this year will will involve discussion of his work. You know, given that he obviously well, won't be attending the convention as a guest any longer, it's now sort of dedicated to him, and his son Richard Christian Matheson will, will be there as well. So it should be a, a sad but interesting event, and you know, sad news 
all in all. It's it's, it's sad news all around, and it's been a it's been a bad year as we talked about on our last podcast. The number of people we've lost. Yes. So, well, that might be so a point to segue into the next thing we we're going to talk about. So, you, do you see, listeners, the segues? There's see, actual see, act, see, act, actual planning. We have an outline. We have a plan here. <laughs> minutes and minutes of planning went into this podcast. Yes, and in fact, the cent- we're yet to get to what we thought was going to be the central topic of the podcast, Gary. Uh, and yet we're already two thirds of the way through, so that's going to be interesting. Maybe we'll keep it brief, or we'll see how far we wander. But I had suggested, having seen other people do it, I confess that I thought it might have been of interest for us to talk about the year to date. We do an awful lot of we end up spending a lot of time around December, January talking about the year in review. But here we are, just past the halfway mark of 2013. We've both been actively reading novels collections anthologies magazines websites ticket stubs um wine labels and it's interesting to stop and see whether we've seen any major work go by what the feel for the year so far is how we feel that it kind of measures up and i think it's a particularly good time because i actually think we're right in the middle of a really interesting release month or two so what what, what what's it for, first of all as an over, oversight or overview gary how are you feeling the year's going my first thought when I started looking at this and making some notes is that it's been a terrific year for novels. Yep. From some very reliable novelists that we've had, we've we've certainly had a new Neil Gaiman novel, which is thin but very substantial. We've had a new Guy K novel, yes, which is one of his major novels. And uh, my sense, partly because I came to Guy K, and he knows this, I've talked to him about this. I came to him late. Uh, I read his early novels, sort of as catch-up. I think he's really getting better, and I really think that River of Stars is better than Under Heaven. Yep, I was having that argument last night with a friend over dinner who was who actually firmly believes the contrary, which is interesting. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I think River of Stars is a better novel, a more rewarding novel to read than Under Heaven, as much as I loved Under Heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's one of his two or three very best books. I agree. Uh, you know. And the novel I have not seen, much to my frustration, although I presumably will be able to review it when the American edition comes out, is the new, is the, uh, new Graham Joyce novel. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Well, all you have to do is buy one, Gary. That's what I did. You're in Australia. I'm in the States. It's not being published here. See, I bought a copy. Dear, dear listeners, I'm actually pointing to this because like you on this because I don't review books very much. I'm just a reviews editor. I don't get, get sent books. So I hopped onto a, an online book, book uh, website and I ordered a copy and paid with my own money and, and, and it came not very long ago. So yes, The Year of the Ladybird is the book you're talking about. Which, which I gather is going to be retitled when it comes out in the States. Yes, because he felt that The Year of the Ladybug sounded ridiculous and I, I take his point. But The Year of the Ladybird, subtitled A Ghost Story, is the new Graham Joyce novel. I'm, I'm yet to read it because it only arrived last week, along with another book that you don't have a copy of yet, Gary, Christopher mm-hmm. Priest, The Adjacent. Oh, why do you get these things? I, I bought it, Gary. Oh, because we're colonies, because there's still resentment. <laughs> we're no, well, actually, the truth of it is not to sort of derail this podcast and this, because British publishers don't send us a lot of galleys, Gary. True. And nor do they trust electronic galleys, Gary. So unfortunately, that's why. But okay. So yes, it, I, I think it will prove to be one of the major books of the year. Well, but, this but, is my point. One of the so we have major writers: Graham yep. Joyce, we have Christopher Priest, we have Guy Kay, we have Neil Gaiman. 
And we could add to that, certainly people like Nawar Hopkinson. Uh, I could add from the American perspective in John Harrison because Empty Space hasn't. No, Empty Space yeah. came out only in the U.S. this year. Yeah, it did, but I think we'd be stretching to include it, Gary. Well, I can include it. We're, 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 we're in the backwater. We're in the colonies here. <laughs> Stop, whining. After you Stop whining, first world man. <laughs> damned, damned Commonwealth book distribution deals. <laughs> Cheap arse people who don't buy their own books. Um, <laughs> no, I, look, I think it's a major. Um, it, it's been a really strong year. Um, I've got a, a small handful of favourites of the year so far, mm-hmm. but I looked at it from a perspective of sort of the. Our reading is always distorted, as we keep saying here, in the sense that. I look back to January and February and I think of them as fantastic times to, for books coming out. But uh-huh. actually what was happening was I was reading April, May, June books in January, February, and that's why it felt that way. Um, right. But we did have a couple of interesting books come out back then. I mean, Angelica Gorodish's Trafalgar, which came out yes. from Small Beer, was, was a terrific uh, science fiction collection of stories or braided narrative or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Karen Lord's second book, The Best of All Possible Worlds, came out. I'm and not a sure. real science fiction book. Yeah, very much. And a really traditional uh, Le Guinian kind of science fiction novel. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I liked it quite as much as her debut, but I liked it very much. A book that got almost no discussion at the time, which I think is regrettable, was the latest Robert Silverberg book, Tales of Mashapur. Um, we could go back and forth as to whether you think that it's um, a major book, but I, I, I think it's an interesting one. We're actually about to get another very major book from Bob. It'll come out in the next month or two, which is, I think, the fu- well, the, the most recent in the collected stories set, which will conclude it to date. We'll bring it up to date. Well, we uh, should get to collected stories. I, I, I would like to add a couple of novels mm-hmm. to things that I thought were interesting this year. One was there was also a new novel by Nala Hopkinson so far. Oh yeah, well that, that that was a March book and would be one of my top four or five books of the year to date. And it's a stunning book. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. book. Her her best. Mm-hmm. I, I think, think so. I think I think that a lot of stuff that she's been playing with. You know, here's an interesting thing about Sister Mind. Yeah. Uh, because Nala Hopkinson Nala had written this young adult novel, The Chaos. I've not even said this to her if she could completely disagree with this. I think. By writing, by liberating herself a little bit with, while writing the chaos, mm-hmm. that Sister Mine, which was originally called, I know she'd been re, working on this for years under the title of Donkey, uh, but I think that some of the freedom that she learned from writing a YA book informed Sister Mind in Sister Mine in the end. Okay. Because it, it, it's back in Toronto. Yep. Uh, it's it's a setting that she started out with. It's much more assured in terms of its. Uh, in level of invention and so forth and so yep. on. And so I, I agree, it's one of her strongest novels. Um, I'll add a couple of things that I that I enjoyed that uh, I'm not exactly, in, just in terms of novels, I, stuff I haven't read, like Joe Hill's Nosferatu, which I keep hearing great things about, or yep. Scalzi's new novel, The Human Division. But I did read the, the Lobby Titter novel, Martian Sands. Yes, you did. It was, it was a hoot. It was a, a hoot. lot of fun. <laughs> now, you see, it's Absolutely. interesting. I, I think of a lot of things about, about Lavi's work. And actually, I was in a bookstore the other day, and I saw the omnibus of the Bookman novels, which is oh, wider. You know, the spine of this thing is, is far further across than my iPad screen. Uh-huh. Uh, it's that thick. But uh, I wouldn't have thought of him as a hoot, but the fact that you think that Martian Sands is a hoot really speaks strongly for it, in my opinion. Um, and it sounds like something that, I mean, I've not read it yet, so I, I should go back. I mean, it was one of a I bunch of interesting to, uh, April releases, I, but yeah. 
and, and, and I know he's a serious writer, but his his allusions to other yep. kinds of popular culture, to earlier writers, to uh, to earlier traditions of Martian fiction, in this case, are a lot of fun. Um, there was a Paul McCauley novel came out this year. Uh, it's not out yet, Gary. Oh dear. Okay. Let's, <laughs> now there was a Paul Macaulay collection that came out in April. Well, uh, I want to get to collections in a minute. Okay. There okay. Some good yep. collections that came out. You and I are responsible for one of them. We are. The other, the other two novels I want to mention, uh, simply because I want to just create some, I don't know, bad feeling. I enjoyed Paul Cornell's novel London Falling. I think he has Excellent. a franchise going there. He's doing what he wants to do. There's a Doctor Who vibe to it, even though it doesn't mm-hmm. have a Doctor. The novel I was less impressed with than everybody else was Lauren Bucus, The Shining Girls. I've not read The Shining Girls. It's certainly got a great deal of buzz uh, as one of the hot books of the year. It's going to be made into a major motion picture, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, I did read her pre, you know, the, the, her preceding novel, which I, uh, Zoo City, which I thought was very good. Yeah, she's um, she knows her way around science fiction. And I'm pretty sure she knows that what she's doing in The Shining Girls is not science fiction. Yeah. But, but well, that's by scene. The, the real question is whether she's doing it well, isn't it? She's doing it well. Uh, scene by scene, she's a terrific writer. I mean, this is essentially a novel about a time-traveling serial killer, mm-hmm. which just sounds like a pitch that you you, you walk into any <laughs> studio in Hollywood and say, oh, yeah, sure, okay, we can do that. Okay. Um, and and, and it's, it's set in Chicago, and she gets... And this is a sort of thing which I'm sensitive about, the way people in London are sensitive about London novels, the way you would be sensitive about people studying novels in Perth. Because that Not is that there are. <laughs> But Lauren Bucus, a South African writer, gets Chicago pretty pretty well. She gets the history of Chicago. She's I know she may have lived here for a while, but that part's okay. Scene by scene, it's okay. Conceptually, it's one of these things which um, is, and it's it's not an issue we can get into now, we can get into it later. Time travel is simply a plot device. Yeah. It has no function in the novel other than to get this guy in his magical time-traveling haunted house from one era to another. Yeah. So scene by scene, it's terrific. Uh, Overall, I didn't find it terribly convincing. Well, that's unfortunate. It has. I mean, I, I will say in this defense, it has received some fine reviews. It's gotten but, great reviews from people who are smarter than I am, so I could be wrong. <laughs> and and, and I, I have to say, I, I haven't read it, so I can't express much of an opinion uh, other than to say that, you know, it, it has been one of the most talked about books of the year. It, it came out to sort of revert to you know, chronology the same month as uh, River of Stars did. So if we'd read it at the same time, I think we still would have been distracted by that. It could be. And I think one of the things that those of us who grew up on reading time-traveling science fiction need to come to terms with is that probably starting with Audrey Niffenegger and the time Niffenegger and the time traveler's wife, we don't own time travel anymore. Time travel is a mainstream trope. Oh yeah, oh, that's Kate, sure. And has been for years. There's Kate Atkinson's novel, Time After Life After Life. I mean time travel is simply out there. It's it's part of mainstream literature now. Well ever since um Doctor Who popularized it and, and earlier the whole concept well, is, yeah. has you know, so I think that that's true. Um, do you have any other major first half of the year novels to touch on? Uh, we should mention that there is another S.A. Corey novel. There is another no. James S.A. Corey novel, just as there is another Daniel Abraham novel out there. And I can't, I, to be honest, I have not read either of them. They, they, I have enormous respect for both uh, Daniel Abraham and Dave Wilhelm, Dave, yes. Daniel and 
high as, as James yeah. S.A. Corey. Well, I can tell you that I'm actually behind. I have both Abaddon's Gate, which is the James S.A. Corey book, and The Tyrant's Law, which is the Daniel Abraham fantasy novel. And mm. they both stand for me as being very fine, entertaining examples of what is mainstream fantasy and science fiction. I mean, the, the Corey series... Uh, with Abaddon's Gate, Leviathan's Awake, and Caliban's War are intended to be real blockbuster, 70s-style, big, fat oh. space opera novels, and they are. They're really good ones, but that's what they are. And I find them tremendously entertaining. Uh, and when I want pop... It's, if you like, it's the best popcorn science fiction being written today, for my money. Um, I, I, no, no, no argument and the, uh, Daniel Abraham's series, you know, that, that starts with the Dragon's Path and, uh, and is now up to the Tyrant's Law, which I think is the third of five or something, is really enjoyable epic fantasy. I don't think it's as interesting or as challenging as the quartet he did for Tor earlier, but is really well done. So yeah, I read the first. Yeah, I read the first couple of those because one of them we were thinking about. Uh, yeah. certainly consideration for the World Fantasy Award, and there's a there's a virtue to simple competence. I, I think, but I think you're going to agree with me. There's more than simple competence at play. That, that's almost, that's almost competence. a put down the simple competence, Gary. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, I, when I say competence, I guess I mean more than simply executing a familiar trope. I, uh, Gene Wolfe's The Wizard Knight is is more than competent in the, I guess the same way that the yeah. the, the Daniel Abraham novels are. Yeah. Uh, but but it's I, I guess competence in the sense of okay, here's familiar material. What can we do with it that's new? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, in terms of, I, 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 I have two more novels I want to mention yep. in terms of uh, uh, subcategories. I was thinking of the Lobes Award subcategories. First novel is the one, as I've talked about before, which I'm very impressed with, is Sophia Samatar's yep. Stranger in a Laundry Room. My copy just arrived, and I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, and the other one in the YA again. category, well, the, well, we need to, well, we're going to talk to Sophia at some point. We need to. Yes, we have I'm to. Insisting. Yes. Um and the other one, which uh, in the YA category, because I don't read a lot of YA, is um, Homeland. Oh, by Cory Doctorow, yes. Cory Doctorow's Homeland, which is, um, I don't know if it's a better novel than Little Brother. It's certainly in the same world. It certainly has more interesting, the characterization is more interesting of it. There's a kind of hipness to Cory Doctorow that is irresistible. I mean, there are, there are these little, apart from the fact that He's writing politically important novels for young adults, and I don't know yep. anybody else who's doing that. Yep. I literally don't know anybody else who's addressing young adults and saying, look, the, the, the NSA is potentially at least after you. Yep. You need to know these things. But at the same time, he's telling you how to make good coffee. Yeah. Uh, he's telling you how to cold brew <laughs> coffee. He's, 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 he's telling you how to set up a virtual computer. Uh, for, yep. so, so it's... And I, as I, I did review this already for Lucas, so I can say this again. It's like reading a really smart Encyclopedia Brown novel <laughs> that's, that's, that's set in the modern world with modern kids and modern concerns. Um, uh, whether it'll be relevant five years from now, I have no idea. Yeah, that's for right now, it's, it's, it, it, there's a sense in which those novels are both important and fun. And I wish that a lot of 17, 18-year-olds would read them, or yeah. 14 and 15-year-olds. I don't know. Well, it'll be more like, yeah. like But uh, I will say there's something to be said uh, for 
remarkably time you know for, for stories that are really of their time we tend to talk a lot about the benefits of, of stories that prove to be timeless that are read for years and years and years and years afterwards but there's a particular thing as well to those things which are very much of their moment and little brother and uh, the, the new one homeland and also i think pirate cinema which came out late last year and pirate uh, cinema which i read are uh, in in that school and you're right Corey's one of the few people doing it and does it extremely well um, I think you're right in terms of some novels being of their time and yet timeless. And the classic example of that is 1984, which is, mm. in, in, in all technological senses and social senses and politi- geopolitical senses, it's very much a 1948 novel. Yep. And yet, it still works. It still yes. works even though we're not worried about communism really taking over the world. We're not, well, we are worried about Big Brother watching us. When, sure. More, but, but essentially, the technology of it is 1948 technology. Yes, yes. You didn't extrapolate anything. I mean, you could you could have had uh, cameras in everybody's apartment in 1948. Yes. Um, but essentially, the, the 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 timeliness of it, the the way in which it's linked to its particular era, is partly what gives it universality. And I yes. think that with any lot, Corey's novels will will have the same kind of um, survivability. Yeah, I think so. There's, there's one other major novel that came out in the first half of the year that we've not touched on yet. Do you have any other novels from, from up to the end of June? I've got one other one. Okay, go ahead. Give me we Are All minutes. Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler just came out. Ah! And it is, and what, it is what we would classify as an associational book. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. a, a very major one is getting astoundingly glowing reviews and is sitting beside on, on my, my bedside table even as we speak. And I don't have a copy of that either. It's one of the things that makes me... Karen is somebody who is possibly the most subversive writer alive in that borderline of genres we talk about. Because as we've talked about more than once, she can write a sentence in a novel. Yep. And it could be a novel like Sarah Canary or it could be a story like um, The Pelican Bar. Yeah. She can write a sentence that turns the entire novel into our stuff. <laughs> well, I think what, what's more important, actually, is that she managed to, to write the kind of thing that, irrespective of whether it has that line or not, is of interest to us and is in many ways of our stuff anyway. What strikes me as being something, based on the reviews I've read, of, which are, as you mentioned, are glowing, that something might be uh, connected in some way thematically or in, with a story of what I didn't see. Yeah, I mean, it essentially deals with a, a, a girl being raised as a sibling of a chimp. Yeah. Uh, which is a kind of science fictional idea, but not quite science fictional. No, no. It, it, it's in that, that sort of odd gray area. So, um, and she's always relentlessly brilliant to read. Always. So there's that. And it, it, it actually stands as why I think on paper, June is the month of the year so far. Because mm-hmm. we are all completely beside ourselves comes out in June. The Ocean at the End of the Lane came out in June. The Year of the Ladybird came out in June. The Adjacent came out in June. That's the Chris Priest book. Um, and they're some of the best books that we, we've had all year. And we're just on the cusp. We're into July now. The book, the one book that you're about to say, we're going to refer, refer to, which, not, which isn't technically out yet, but it's actually out in a week or two, is Paul McCauley's Evening's Empires. Yes. Uh, and also just out, and I, I'm going to call it as being out because... I have a final copy that I bought from a shop, uh, Neptune's Brood by Charlie Strauss, with what I think is his best science fiction novel to date, uh, which is a fascinating slow space opera based around debt and all sorts of other things, or debt theory, um, and also about a Spanish prisoner scheme. 
Well, we uh, should probably devote another podcast to things we're looking forward to. Yeah, we won't get into that too much, no. So, but we've got we've got a new Howard Waldorf collection coming out. We've got a new Gene Wolfe novel. We've got a uh, Robert Charles Wilson things coming out later this year. We could talk about. It. I want to add a couple of collections to it. Okay. Our yep. Uh, one is that there was. A writer who we haven't talked about because neither one of us read heavily in the horror genre, but he's one of the best writers working, is Laird Barron. Yep. Who did have a collection of stories out earlier this he year. He did. As did, um, well, as did Paul McCauley. I think we mentioned that. The yes, there was a very British history came out from PS earlier in the year. And there's one, one, one of two huge best-offs they're doing this year. Oh, okay, good. They're doing that and they're doing an Ian McDonald one. Oh, excellent. Yes. And then you and I can claim the best of Joe Haldeman, even though Joe actually approved everything we put in it. Well, well, can we also say that probably Joe technically could have uh, claimed the best of Joe Haldeman because he wrote it. But uh, well, yes, yes, we, we, we were a small cog in that in the machine that brought the best of Joe Haldeman into the world uh, via subterranean press. Find it somewhere. I think it's kind of out of and print. And the other, the other one, which is simply prime. Well, it's, it's not only a plug for a friend of mine. It's 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 it's, it's personal privilege. Was the story until now, which is the retrospective Kip Reed yes. anthology yep. going back to 1958. Yep. Uh, I confess to having written the introduction for it, which is a lot of fun because there's a lot of short Kip Reed fiction, which I either hadn't read or didn't remember until she sent me the manuscript. Yep. And this is somebody who has been writing inventively in the field for more than half a century. Yep. And getting enormous amounts of respect from everybody. Except I think uh, I think Paul Kincaid pointed this out in his review, but except not a lot of award nominations. No, not a lot, unfortunately. Though she's she's more than you know deserving. Um, there are other collections as well. Uh, I have to put in a strong word for Adam Robots by Adam Roberts. I think the silly title doesn't help, uh, but it's a very interesting and uh, rewarding collection. Not my number one most favorite collection of the year, but a strong one. There's a strong Stephen Baxter collection that came out in April, Universes, collection of uh, three or four big novellas. Uh, Richard Bowes had one of his many books of the year come out back in April yeah. via Aqueduct, a book called The Queen, The Cambion, and Seven Others, which had a couple of really, really very strong stories. And he's got another collection coming out shortly and a new novel, which you either have or is on its way to you, Gary. Uh, there, okay. was a, there was a major... I have, I yep. have his memoir. His, uh, yes, Dust Assassins. Dust yes, dust, dust Devils and something. Yeah, oh. to look at. Um, we've also, we also had uh, the latest Lucia Shepard collection, Five Autobiographies and a Fiction, which are... We, and his, his we, work is always rewarding. And we had a Chris Barzak collection. We did. We had a very, very good one called The Best of... Was it Before and After... Uh, Before, and Before and After Lives. Lives. Yeah, that was the one. Which I would strongly recommend. I read the original in that just the other day and liked it a great deal. Um, and I would also put a word in for... Oh, Big Mama Stories, the Eleanor Arneson short book from Aqueduct. I thought that was a lot of fun. I thought it was yeah. an enormous amount of fun. Um, and again, she's somebody who hasn't, uh, well, she hasn't been that active in the field lately, but the whole idea of the science fiction She totally has. Is, she's, she's been writing a lot of short stories, uh, and they've not been really collected. And in fact, if I were to get frustrated and animated, and I'm trying not to get frustrated and animated, because that's not a good thing, um, I'm very, very, very happy that the, the uh, Big Mama book came out, but it's not mm -hmm. the book we need. There's all the Warhoth stories that haven't been collected. Um, 
of which there are many and some of which are remarkably strong. There's really uh, at least one or two big, major uh, Eleanor Arneson books that could be done and I really hope will be done. I remain one of those people who's still frustrated that uh, I think it was Ring of Swords, this, the follow-up to that never came out, which was the Huarhath novel. Mm. Uh, just terrific stuff. So the fact that any book of hers came out was welcome. And I have to say... That's true. I, the Warhath thing has, has sort of mutated over the years, it seems to me. Yeah. Uh, into kind of general purpose, a way, a way of addressing different science fictional and fantasy themes. The, mm-hmm. the most recent one, which is in Gardner's uh, year's best, is Holmes Sherlock. Yeah, from, from um, uh, Eclipse Online, yeah. Yeah, which is very nice of him and very nice of you to both accept the story, but it's but it's it's using Warhath, and she's done this before. Uh, using Warhath as a way of commenting on science, not just on science fiction, yeah. but on popular culture, popular fictional tropes, uh, all sorts of things. And she's using that in a way that I don't know I've seen anybody quite use um, an alien society. Even though I gather the Warhath originally was much more a science fictional concept, and now it's kind of a literary concept. Or a it, it has both to it, but you know, th- yeah. there's a lot of stories to, to look and to, to, to check out. There's something we, we didn't discuss doing, and I've done... Well, actually, you know, before I get to that, I was going to get, get to a little summary kind of year-in-review thing just there for a second. But I should m- make mention of a few anthologies, since that's an area that I sort of that's am busy in, you know. Uh, and prob- probably at the moment, my favorite fantasy anthology of the year is Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, which mm-hmm. came from our good friend Alan Datlow and Terry Windling. Um, there's an array of interesting, interesting, strange science fiction projects out there. There's Pandemonium, the Lowest Heaven, which was edited by Anne Perry and Jared Shurin. Now, Pandemonium mm-hmm. is this British group who are doing this really odd thing. They're producing commemorative anthologies to go with museum exhibits. That's a really odd thing. Shit. Sorry. I've just trashed my headphones. Just wait a second. Sorry. That's, I, I apologize. I have to go back and actually edit that out. I'm just hoping this is... That this is all going to go back. Well, you, that, I, I don't think it came across as being terribly offensive, but, you know, it's your choice. Um, but anthologies... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, now, the thing with The Lowest Heaven, just to uh-huh. sort of touch on, has, has a bunch of major stories in it. Uh, it's basically structured around the, the, a, a astronomical exhibit about the structure of the solar system so that so it starts with just the sun out to the the, the you know the, the distant planets on plan, planetesimals some really strong stories in that there's a very odd project as well that came out of a symposium that uh, the two benford twins gregory and jim put together yes. at starship century yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and that ha- had a batch of interesting stories not the least a major neil stevenson novelette uh 12 and a half thousand word piece and this goes back to this hieroglyph project and the idea of trying yes. to sort of reinvigorate a kind yeah, of 1950s yeah. big engineering kind of oh. science fiction. And I believe that um, the novelette that's in Starship Century will be in one of the um, hieroglyph books when that, they come out. There's also another British thing, Adventure Rocket Ship, Let's All Go to the Science Fiction Disco. Now, Adventure Rocket Ship is an ongoing um, new magazine anthology series. The subtitle is... is basically is supposed to sort of point towards the juncture between science fiction and music. And the highlight story in there is the one by a newer uh, British writer, Tim Morn, which is very, very good. And the other oddity that I saw out there is a thing called An Aura of Familiarity, Visions from the Coming Age of Networked Matter. 
And you'll be deeply shocked to hear that Cory Doctor is associated with this. Uh-huh. <laughs> With a name like that. He's got a very uh, interesting story called By His Things. You, well, you know him in it. Uh, but there's also stories by Rudy Rucker and Madeline Ashby and Bruce Sterling and Warren Ellis and Ramiz Nan. Uh, Nam. And Ramiz Nam is, I think, a name we're going to hear a lot more of in the coming couple of years. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, he's got a uh, novel out and is looking to be someone to pay attention to. So, so a, I, I will say I, I'm really skating across anthologies. There's a note in the latest Locus that's uh, the number of anthologies recommended last year were up, uh-huh. were up dramatically over the ones in the preceding year. There was something like 77 anthologies were name-checked in the awards this this coming year. I think there will be more this year. There's just more and more and more. So. I don't think it's a bad sign at all. I think the idea that uh, we keep reading from year after year uh, that uh, the, the science fiction markets are... Are, are the print magazines are, are fading, and mm. some, but not a lot, of online magazines are picking them up. And yet, the anthology market—it seems to me that most of these anthologies, even some small presses, are likely to get the readership of most short story venues, either in print or online, or close to it. Maybe, maybe not. Hard to know if that's true. Um, well, you never. I, I, we, well, well, look, we don't have have the usage stats for Clark's World or Lightspeed. Uh, though I understand their readership is quite significant. Uh, Tor.com has a very significant readership, and I should say, I was going to say, that probably the most interesting online venue right now is Tor.com, now that they have Anne Vandermeer and Ellen Datlow buying short fiction for them. Well, that's certainly true. Yeah, they've got, they've got really excellent editors working for them. And they've published some terrific stuff by Karen Tidbeck, by Thomas Older Huvelt, and by a bunch of other people. Some really interesting stuff, so... They're worth worth keeping an eye out and, and c- contribute to my feeling that this is overall a very strong and robust year. Whether it will deliver every kind of fiction that you know people want the most, I don't know. Well, I think we'll have to look at the second half of the year. But so far, in terms of major fantasy writers, uh, you know, Guy K. Neil Kamen, Neil Gaiman, and so forth, uh, it's it's really strong. It and, is, and Nala Hopkinson. Uh, and the, we've mentioned a lot of strong short story collections. I mean, the notion that the field is in any kind of um, doldrums doesn't seem to be borne out by the kind of stuff that comes is coming out this year. Um, well, I, I guess that, that'll be a point to come back to at the end of the year, and it might even be interesting to uh, bring our friend uh, Paul Kincaid back in at the end of the year to see how he's feeling about that. Uh, I, I still think there's a lot to what he said, but I do see a lot of interesting work. And I also think the major value of that conversation anyway is to see what gets stirred up as a result of it. And when I see uh, newer writers like Levi Tidhar, who's still comparatively new, newer writers like Tim Morn, uh, like Madeleine Ashby, like whoever you, know, you choose to name, whether it be Sophia Samatar and fan- Fantasy mm-hmm. or wherever else, it, may, it gives you hope that there's new things happening, different things going to be coming our way. My little I cheat heard. is I was going to give you four or five, my, sort of my shopping list books for the year to date. Mm. Do you have a sh- the ones that you would most suggest people buy out of the year books published to date? I, here's, a, here's a topic which we ought to go into a separate length. It depends on who. I mean, if somebody <laughs> wants to read any kind of historical fantasy, they should they should read River of Stars to learn how it's done. They should read Guy Gabriel Kay. Yeah. Um, in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's almost pointless to recommend the Neil Gaiman book. Why? But pe- <clears throat> because 
everybody in the world reads every naval neo gaming book that comes but, out. But, but they don't. And the thing is, if you don't turn around and say which the good ones are, and there are better neo gaming books and less better neo gaming books, just as there are for anybody, yes. then I think you know you're missing a point. And I think the ocean at the end of the lane stands out. I mean, to I me, think it's his most, I think it is the most profoundly honest book he has written. Okay. That's a big call. It's a big call, but I I, I believe that, and I've I've said that to Neil, uh, yeah. and he didn't seem to have a problem with it. Well, um, why would he? It's actually a compliment, Gary. So that's okay. But uh, for me, the, the Nalo Hopkinson book, Sister Mine, yes, would be a must-read. Uh, River of Stars, obviously. The Ocean at the End of the Lane, obviously. Neptune's Brood by Charlie Stross, I would say, is is a must-read. And now that I'm partway through it, it looks as though the adjacent by Chris Priest will join that number, which is not a surprise, I don't think. It doesn't surprise me at all. I'm looking forward to that a lot. But you know, there's still so much to read, and I, actually, I'm moving into a time because we're 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 currently in the gap between the Locus Awards weekend and ReaderCon, which is next weekend, which is where we'll you know we've got uh, a, a nice, po- a, a exciting podcast lined up, all ready to go. If, if the hotel's Wi-Fi works. Yes. If. And there are other people there who we might talk to. And then we move into the gap between Ritacon and World Fantasy when well, I have to do the vast... Va- va- oh, sorry? The gap between Ritacon and Worldcon because I'll be going to Worldcon as well. Because, I, see, because I'm not not going, it doesn't really count. But we can we can pretend that Worldcon counts this year when I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, you're right. We do. But I guess I'm just thinking workload-wise between Ritacon and World Fantasy, I have to get all of my best of the year reading done. Oh my goodness! Yeah, because I mean, and World Fantasy when we get to Brighton in October will be the first chance we will have had in over a year to have a podcast where you and I are actually sitting in a room together with our yes. guests. And if we actually organize things, it'll be podcastatopia. We'll record like like maniacs. Record everybody we can find. We'll be recording people in the bar who we don't even know. We'll just lay, lay traps on the on the floor, you know, like to grab their, Absolutely. so they can't get away, uh, or or maybe some kind of netting that we can drop from the ceiling. That's not going to work. That's not even funny. That's ridiculous. No, no. <laughs> but there's all sorts of people we hope to talk to. Certainly, we've pushed this metaphor beyond. We have, and we're 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 way out beyond. Well, we're not way out beyond our our duly appointed sort of self-appointed one-hour limit, but we're about oh, an yeah, we're hour about three important separate issues here. We talked about the Locus Awards. We talked about Richard Matheson, and now we've talked about the year so far. And now, yes. and now we're going to sort of wind up and say that with a little bit of good fortune, we, uh, you will, well, obviously you will anyway be at ReaderCon, but, at, but the podcast will be at ReaderCon, and we will uh, talk to guests to be named later, though they are lined up and confirmed, uh, which hopefully will be wonderful. And it'll hopefully be a great weekend, and the podcast will continue. It'll be delightful. I okay. look forward to talking to you. I'll talk to you from there one way or the other. Okay. We'll have a podcast. If not, you we can talk about the podcast we could have had. <laughs> Excellent. Well, until then, we remain now as always the Jonathan McElmont identified Mullers of Cood Street. Mm-hmm.